This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The rights of accusers versus those of the accused are at the heart of a debate over how colleges should handle sexual misconduct. Every survivor of sexual misconduct must be taken seriously. Every student accused of sexual misconduct must know that guilt is not predetermined. U.S. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has proposed changes to current regulations, and they mark a shift from Obama-era guidelines, which critics say deny due process to the accused. The public can comment on the plan to the end of January. For some perspective, I'm joined by Denver criminal defense attorney Dan Recht. He generally supports the changes. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for being with us. And Boulder attorney John Clune specializes in sexual misconduct cases. He disagrees with DeVos's changes. Hi, John. Morning, Ryan. So the changes fall under Title IX, which says no person shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program receiving federal assistance. John, many people think of Title IX as referring to equal access to sports in college. How does it apply to sexual misconduct? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it got its name by equal access to sports in college, but that's not what the purpose was. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a movement afoot to address the fact that women were being discriminated against in regards to their access to actual education. So, For example, at the University of Virginia, for their main undergraduate college, women were not allowed to attend that college. At Georgetown University, if you were a woman and you were married, you were not allowed to attend any graduate programs um, because the thought was you're already married. What do you need to be going to school for? And so that was the initial genesis of Title IX. In the 90s, some of the cases that started popping up with the U.S. Supreme Court explained Well, for schools, if you are learning of sexual harassment of women on campus or men and not doing anything in response to it, and those people drop out of school as a result to the hostile educational environment, which was going on and still goes on 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 a large scale, that's just as good as not letting them in school in the Mm. first place. And you made an important point there quickly, which is that this applies to men as well who can be victims. And I want to make that clear as we frame this conversation. I'll say that CU Boulder's Title IX coordinator is now compiling comments from folks in the CU community, may issue a formal comment to the U.S. Department of Education as these rules are vetted. So let's break down some of the changes One narrows the definition of sexual misconduct from unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature to behavior that is severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. Let's talk about that. Dan Recht, why is that change of definition important in your mind? Well, because what had happened um, prior to this is that the... um, the um, definition of sexual misconduct was so broad, so very broad, that it was um, including um, unwanted uh, um, verbal advances and and things that maybe shouldn't be included. So that definition you just read is is language right out of the U.S. Supreme Court and language that has been tested and that I would agree with. You would agree with that. And what do you think, John, about narrowing the definition? Well, it's it's very problematic. I mean, the the original definition from the Department of Education was unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. But the reality was most schools were not implementing a definition that was so broad like Dan's talking about. There were individual schools that were embracing 
um, difficult definitions that Dan's referring to, and that should have been the solution, was, which is to fix some of the problems at the individual schools. But when you have a standard that says that it has to be something that's so severe and pervasive to effectively deny somebody's educational opportunities, what you are setting up is a, 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 a system where um, individual victims have to endure a certain level of sexual harassment and abuse before it rises to a particular level that a school has to respond. And let me just be super clear uh, once again. We're moving from, under these regulations, unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature to behavior that is severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. Uh, and so do I hear you saying, John Clune, that if you move to that more narrow definition— you are not weeding out behavior that could potentially become more serious? Well, you're, you're not addressing Dan's concern. What you're doing is saying, we'll address sexual harassment or sexual abuse when it gets to a particular level that we think it's bad enough. And the problem with bad enough is because historically we have seen that while schools are waiting to decide whether it's bad enough, that students who are survivors of sexual abuse either drop out of school or can take more drastic measures like attempt suicide. And that's why historically, not just through the Obama administration, but since the Bush administration, the Department of Education has used that earlier definition, which is just unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature. Dan, will you respond to that for I us? will, because um, as pointed out very clearly by a woman uh, contributing editor at Atlantic Magazine very recently... The problem is, and the problem has been, and I've seen this in my own practice, that that can include and does include simply unwanted flirtation, for example. And what we're we're missing thus far from this uh, discussion is the dire consequences that a a conviction of such uh, acts can have to a male student. They're made to... Often, um, they, there's a finding of that they committed the sexual misconduct, and then they're wearing a scarlet letter of sexual perpetrator forever. There's all kinds of examples of male graduates of undergraduate school having their graduate um, acceptances revoked, not being able to get into other schools if they've been expelled. So we have to remember that the consequences on the accused can be very dire, and there needs to be appropriate due process for them. What do you say, John Clune, to this idea that reputations are being besmirched without due process? Well, look, I mean, let's let's put this into context. I mean, this administration clearly has decided that the number one priority is going to be reputations of accused students rather than safety on campus. One of the things this administration has said is, as part of the reason for making these changes, that there's been 150 lawsuits that have been filed on behalf of accused students Um, who are alleging due process violations over the span of the last four years. And so to put that in context, at Yale College, there have been 150 allegations of sexual misconduct complaints filed in this semester alone. That's at one school. There are 5,300 colleges and universities in America. At Chicago Public School System, and remember, these changes apply just as much at the K-12 through level as they do to post-secondary That's education. That's right. There's so much focus on college, but this is also true for those lower grades. Right. And so at, at Chicago Public School System, they have had 500 complaints of sexual misconduct that have been filed in this semester alone. So there are endemic problems with sexual assault on campus. We know that one in five women are subjected to sexual assault in their time in college. We know that 90% of those women or men are not reporting their allegations of sexual abuse. So there are things that college students need significant help with from the Department of Education 
But this administration wants to focus on the reputation of the accused students, which shouldn't be ignored, but shouldn't be the priority. You're talking about the Trump administration when you say this administration. And Dan Recht, don't we know false accusations uh, to be pretty rare when yeah. it comes to sexual misconduct? It depends how you define rare. So, for example, let's say only uh, one in a hundred uh, uh, accusations is false. That's a whole lot of uh, young men being falsely accused and young women because we've represented women too in my office. Is that the uh, number? Why uh, do you? Why I, do you I, I'm, I'm do, I know. I don't know the number. Uh, I think it's a greater number than that. I'm simply saying if it's a very small percentage still over the course of how many accusations get made, that's that is many, many, many lives ruined. And importantly, keep in mind that these very kind of allegations have been dealt with for eons in the criminal justice system. And there, there's all the due process protections that there should be in on uh, college campuses as well. And still, people readily get convicted, as any sex offender should, but there's a protection of innocent people. So what the this administration is saying is you, you have to presume um, people innocent and you have to presume people accused of such terrible acts innocent. And I don't see the problem with that. Can you think of an example, Dan Recht, of a wrongly accused student who you believe had their life ruined because of this? Absolutely. I've, we've seen it in our office. And here's an example. Um, uh, male and female uh, students are drinking um, right here on a local campus. Uh, the male believes it's consensual sex. The female thereafter, when her boyfriend finds out about the um, interaction, alleges that she was um, raped. Um, the police look very carefully at the case and decide not to file charges because they believe that it was consensual. And yet the university... Um, proceeds in a really unfair fashion without appropriate due process. And that young man's life uh, has been ruined. He was expelled. He's got that scarlet letter. It's, it's problematic. So, John Clune, what I hear Dan Recht saying is these changes from the U.S. Department of Education, again, still proposed at this point, are about matching the the system of justice being meted out on college campuses to the sort of outside court system, having those look more alike. And I, I think of one example in these proposals, which is the requirement that colleges hold live hearings, something that we might recognize on the outside as something of a court hearing. Uh, doesn't it serve to reason that there ought to be a live hearing? Well, I think that the the, there's a fundamentally flawed goal, which is trying to match these proceedings to a criminal justice process or even a civil justice process. Um, you know, Dan Dan knows me from well back when I was a prosecutor. There were a large number of cases um, that we declined to file. They were sexual assaults, but it wasn't because we thought it was consensual. It was because we didn't think we could prove that case on the much, much higher standard of beyond a reasonable doubt. And the reality is that the criminal justice system is designed so that there are more rights for the accused individuals. And it should be that way. We're talking about potentially on sexual assault cases, incarcerating people for maybe up to their natural life. And so that is how that process should be designed. That's not the same as a civil rights case hmm. against individuals at the university level where the whole purpose of Title IX is to make sure that men and women 
are treated equally. So when we do things like create these live hearing processes or require live cross-examination by whomever is going to do the cross-examination, these are rights that we're building in to, again, stack the deck for the accused like we would in a criminal justice system. It's not appropriate in a civil rights model. Is it your fear that it would prevent victims from coming forward, that it might have a chilling effect. Yeah, that's that's exactly the fear. And actually what Betsy DeVos has designed is a more hostile system than the criminal justice system. You're going to have a requirement of a live hearing. You're going to have the requirement of cross-examination. But there is no judge there. There is no prosecutor there to object to, to questioning. You're going to rely on student personnel administrators at universities and potential potential hearing panelists that I don't know how many of these hearings Dan has done, but I've done campus hearings around the country at probably 50 different schools. And the reality is they don't have the ability to, to, um, to set uh, appropriate boundaries for this type of uh, hearing process. I will well, say that the, these live hearings would have cross-examinations, but reading from the pro- proposal here, personal confrontation between the complainant and respondent would not be permitted. So you wouldn't have direct interaction, presumably, between but that's, the that's, accused and the accused. That, that's going to mean that what's going to happen is that you're going to have either skilled you know, defense attorneys who are going to be much more aggressive um, with a, a victim than you know, a potential accused student is, or who knows? There's no other limitations on who the advisor could be. It could be an angry, hostile parent. It could be a fraternity brother of the accused. There's no limitation put in place. In this. I just want to say that you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about proposed changes to Title IX in how schools, not just colleges and universities, but on down to grade school, deal with accusations of sexual misconduct. We're getting two views in Colorado on these proposed changes. And Dan Recht, uh, respond to me um, uh, about this idea that the process being created under these changes, the live hearing, um, is actually unfair and uh, perhaps even tougher than a court of law. Well, this is where John and I disagree fundamentally. There is nothing more important to the truth-seeking process than cross-examination. Our Supreme Court has said that over and over, um, and I just believe it to be true. The uh, judicial system in the United States is the envy of much of the world in large part because we allow cross-examination. It gets There isn't a better mechanism for ferreting out the truth than uh, the ability to cross-examine an accuser. And without that, way too many innocent people are convicted and and um, uh, made to suffer the consequences. Are there any changes in these proposals that you disagree with, Denrecht? I'm just curious. If you well, were writing them yourself, is there anything that you would do differently? I haven't focused on, because my practice focuses on the disciplinary proceedings. So on um, the standards for civil actions, um, I, I don't really have a position. And and there is the issue of what jurisdiction the school has and if they have jurisdiction for allegations occurring off campus. Yes, indeed. And that seems... So if, this, so, if this happens in a fraternity house that's off campus or in an apartment building right. that two students, you know, might share off campus. That seems too stringent to me. And it seems like the, the school should, in fact, have broader jurisdiction. And I think that might be something John and I agree on. 
John, would you care to just say a few more words about that, this question of on versus off campus? Yeah, definitely. I mean, keep in mind that uh, at at the college level, 80% of students live off campus. And so the overwhelming majority of sexual assaults occur off campus, but then it creates a hostile environment when those two students now have to interact on campus, whether it's in the classroom or otherwise. Thanks for being with us, gentlemen. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you so much. Dan Recht, a Denver criminal defense attorney who supports Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos's proposed changes to sexual misconduct rules at colleges on down. John Clune, a Boulder attorney who specializes in sexual misconduct cases and disagrees with the proposed changes. The sound you're about to hear comes from millions of miles away. This is the sound of wind on Mars. It was captured by an instrument aboard NASA's InSight spacecraft, which was built and operated out of Colorado. It's not the only sound captured this month. A seismometer aboard InSight recorded vibrations caused by Martian winds blowing across the lander's solar panels. The sound is very low pitch, and so the folks at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory increased the pitch a bit. And there you go. Martian sounds. He is African-American, and he was in the Ku Klux Klan. In the late 1970s, Ron Stallworth had just been named the first black detective in Colorado Springs, and he decided to infiltrate the local branch of the KKK. But when there was a delay in getting his Klan membership card, Stallworth made a phone call. Here's how that sounds in the movie from Spike Lee, based on his life, Black Klansman. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish. Italians and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. It was part of an elaborate sting. Stallworth conned Duke and his Colorado Springs followers on the phone while a white officer met with them in person. The story stayed under wraps for decades until Stallworth wrote a book and Hollywood came calling. Black Klansman has now been nominated for four Golden Globes. Best Actor, Supporting Actor, Movie and Director... The real Ron Stallworth joined me in August from El Paso, Texas, where he's retired. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. This all happened in the 1970s, and I think it was much more harrowing than that clip from the movie trailer sounds. Uh, But I was amazed to hear that you actually talked to David Duke just recently? What was that about? Oh, he called me uh, concerned about his image, how he's going to be portrayed in this movie. He told me that he respected me, and uh, he uh, expressed his uh, respect and like for Spike Lee, but he's concerned about his image. Uh, We talked about Charlottesville. We talked about Donald Trump, a whole range of issues. How was it to get that call? Uh, It felt strange. I was in my hotel room in New York, and out of the clear blue, I get the call, and 
It's the voice that I spoke with 40 years ago, and I recognized it immediately. Do you believe he really respects you and Spike Lee? I really don't care. And I know Spike doesn't. (laughs) Yeah, you basically played David Duke for a fool 40 years ago. He signed your clan membership card. You talked to him often on the phone in those days. And I think you even served as his bodyguard for a day without him having any idea who you were. Do I have that right? You do. He acknowledged that the events took place. He basically was saying that his recollection of events is a lot different than mine. And I told him that my uh, recollection is based on the police reports that were written, and that was the basis for uh, how I wrote my book. So the cast of Black Klansmen did a live Q&A on Twitter the other night. This was before the L.A. premiere. They talked about meeting you on the day that they read through the script for the first time. The first voice we're going to hear is Laura Harrier, who plays your love interest. He had his KKK card. He you know, still has it. He's a, yeah, he's a member. He carries it in his wallet. Yeah. No lie, no lie. He's a card-carrying member of the KKK. Signed by David Duke. So 40 years later, you really carry your KKK card, huh? I've carried it every uh, day since uh, I got it in January of 79. What does it mean to you? It's a memento of my career. And like I like to tell people, if I'm ever in a fatal car crash, some poor cop's going to come up on my mangled black body and go through my personal effects, find this card, and it's just going to freak him out. (laughs) Uh, You have a very twisted sense of humor, Ron. Most cops do. Most cops do. Yeah, I think gallows humor, I suppose. Okay, back to the cast. This is Laura Harrier again and Topher Grace, who plays David Duke. And the actors are talking about the first script reading where you ended up describing these events to them in your own words. Hearing this whole thing come together for the first time, and that for me, that was when it really hit me. Like, I don't know, it it made it real. Story for like forty-five minutes, and then we effectively—it was—it was was long. It went on for a while, (laughs) (laughs) and maybe longer than that. And then we kind of told it back to him. It wasn't like an artistic experience I'd ever had before, where he told it to us, and then we kind of digested it and then we did a read through for him and uh i mean this guy is a hero to be sitting there uh among the cast uh spike lee on one side of me to hear them uh reading the words i wrote in my book recognizing that this was all going to come to life on the big screen very uh very special very surreal moment In 1978, you were the first black police officer hired in Colorado Springs. That's not true. Oh, that's not true? That's not true. No, it's not your fault. That myth has been floating around from the beginning of uh, the publicity for this movie. Oh, goodness. uh, Started by, I believe, uh, the studio. I was the first black detective in the history of the Colorado Springs Police Department. Uh I was not the first black officer. One day you were in the office as an undercover cop reading the newspaper, looking for something that might spark an investigation, and you found an ad for the Klan with a P.O. box and a phone number, and you wrote. What happened? Well, I wrote a note to uh, the P.O. box uh, using the language that they use, identifying myself as a uh, fellow uh, like-minded white supremacist, Told him I was interested in, in the Klan, wanted to uh, find out some more information about him. And I mistakenly, not mistakenly, I had a brain cramp that day. I signed my real name instead of my undercover name. 
and gave them the undercover phone line that we used that back then was untraceable and mailed it off. I wonder if the the language came easily to you. In other words, was it difficult to try to fake that supremacist tone? When you've been called a like I had been over three times in my life and gotten in fights and kicked out of school for, it's not hard to talk like one of them. And I was a I was an experienced undercover investigator. When you work undercover, you're basically acting, and you have to put on a performance that is convincing to the target. It wasn't hard at all. What were the results of having sent that letter? Uh, about a week or two later, I get a phone call from a gentleman that identified himself as uh, the local organizer, said he had gotten my note, that I had some uh, good ideas, and he wanted to know why I wanted to join the Klan. I told him that uh, I hated... Uh, than anybody else who isn't pure Aryan white like I am, and I want to do something to stop the abuse of the white race. His response was, you're just the kind of guy we're looking for. When can we meet? And that's when I said to myself, oh, hell, what am I going to do now? And I quickly uh, recovered and told him that I couldn't meet him right away, but I could in a week. We settled on a location down in Security, Colorado, and... uh, The investigation was off and running. Security Colorado, just outside of Colorado Springs. And my understanding is that you gave him a physical description, obviously not of yourself, but of one of your fellow cops. Actually, I gave him a description of myself because uh, Chuck, the uh, white Ron Stallworth, Chuck is about my height, my weight, or was back then. Mm. And uh, I knew how he came to to work dressed. He was the one that I was uh, selecting to uh, play me in this con game. The only thing I didn't only thing I didn't say was that I was black. Right. <laughs> what what were you interested in investigating specifically? What what did you think the law enforcement interest in this was? Well, it was obvious. The Klan is a subversive group that uh, commits domestic acts of terrorism. The very fact that they were recruiting through a classified ad in the Colorado Springs newspaper was of interest to me as a police officer. You don't want subversive groups in your town, and if they are, you want to know as much about them as you can. So my job as an intelligence officer was to gather that intelligence. So let's talk about your real partner. You've only ever identified him as Chuck. And uh, yes, while you build the relationships with these clan members on the phone, he's out there meeting and talking with them. How did you guys keep your stories straight? Chuck had to know everything that I had been saying on the phone so that he could walk in and pick up a conversation based on what I had said. I had to know everything that Chuck was saying in the uh, face-to-face environment with them. And uh, we played this uh, little uh, maneuver for about seven and a half months of the undercover phase of the investigation. Will you give me an example, Ron, of where this really worked, where the coordination paid off? Well, Chuck went to a meeting that I had set up. During this meeting, uh, the local organizer showed Chuck his gun collection, 13 guns, uh, showed Chuck uh, the fact that he carried a, I believe it was a 9mm or forty five on his person at all times to protect himself against blacks. But during the course of this meeting, uh, something was said to Chuck that I wanted to follow up on after the meeting ended. I waited for about an hour and then uh, placed a phone call back to the local organizer. And uh, he immediately said, what's wrong with your voice? You sound different. So when he said that, I coughed. (coughs) And I said, uh, 
I have a sinus infection. He said, oh, I get those all the time. Let me tell you what you need to do. And then he proceeded to prescribe a remedy for me. And that was the only time in this uh, investigation that my uh, voice being different than Chuck's was ever questioned. But of course, that intel on how these KKK members were armed was also a reminder of just how dangerous this mission was. And that if something went wrong, your life was on the line, potentially. Chuck's life was on the line. These guys were... They should have known from the very beginning that they were dealing with two people. Chuck and I have uh, two distinctively different voices, but they didn't. We basically were able to outwit them, if you will, simply because they were not the uh, brightest light bulbs in the socket. Uh, But we never lost sight of the fact that we were dealing with some potentially dangerous people. Let's get back to David Duke. How did you first meet him? I uh, placed a phone call to him uh, down in Louisiana. My my membership card was supposed to come within two weeks after uh, it was mailed off or received by them, and uh, I never got it in that time frame. So I decided to uh, bypass talking to the local organizer of the Colorado Grand Dragon, who was a Lakewood fireman. I decided to bypass them and go directly to uh, the Grand Wizard himself, David Duke. So I placed a call down to his office. He answered, confirmed who he was. I told him I was Ron Stallworth, a member of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK, and that I didn't have my card, and I had been told that I can't participate in Klan activities uh, until I had the card. He ruffled through some papers, and he finally said, oh, here it is. Uh, He said uh, he apologized. He said they had been having uh, some administrative problems but uh, that he would personally process my application and get my uh, membership uh, card mailed to me. How did you wind up being his bodyguard? I came to work one day, and the chief of police basically informed me that uh, the visit that David Duke and his uh, minions in Colorado Springs were planning to uh, go on a publicity blitz to try to recruit new members, that he was getting death threats. Uh, There was a lot of protest groups. The chief told me that uh, he had no available manpower, uh, and therefore he was assigning me to be Duke's bodyguard while he was in town uh, because he didn't want anything to happen to him. How was that day for you? I enjoyed it. I met David. I did not give him my name. I simply introduced myself as a detective with Colorado Springs Police Department. I said, I I don't uh, agree with your philosophy, or political ideology, but I am a professional, and to the best of my ability, I will uh, uh, do everything I can to keep you alive in my city. He thanked me. He shook hands. He gave me the clan handshake. I sat in the uh, restaurant where he was having a luncheon meeting with uh, his followers. There were about 10 or 12 people there. Some had their wives or girlfriends, and uh, We anticipated at least half probably were armed, so uh, the potential for something happening was was present, but nothing did. I'm trying to square how polite David Duke is to you, you know, more recently and then in your interactions when you were his bodyguard in Colorado Springs. I'm trying to square that with the ugliness of the Klan, the violence of the Klan. It's mind-boggling. Nothing mind-boggling about it, uh. He was on his side of the fence. I was on my side of the fence. 
I know the history or knew the history of the Klan, and David was uh, promoting it, and in the process trying to change the image of the Klan. They were trying to make the Klan a political uh, movement. They talked about borrowing the play uh, from the playbook of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., ironically, in that uh, they wanted to register Klan members or white supremacists to uh, vote and uh, change America. So that was the aim of the Klan back then. Uh, it's still the aim of it now. Did anything come of your investigation? Yeah, we prevented three cross burnings. We identified uh, two top security clearance personnel at uh, NORAD. As a result, the Pentagon was called, and those two were transferred. As I understood it, they were going to be on a transport heading to what I was told was, quote-unquote, the North Pole. We identified uh, a plot. It wasn't really a plot, but they discussed stealing automatic weapons from the armory at Fort Carson for the purpose of arming themselves for the racial holy war that they all believe is going to happen. Among the people that they were talking to was the uh, head of the Posse Comitatus, far-right extremist group in Colorado Springs. This is some of the stuff that came out of this investigation. We achieved our goal. I, I think the case was sealed. Do I have that right? I wouldn't call it sealed. Uh, the case ended because uh, they trusted Ron Stallworth to such an extent and believed in him that they called me up one day and said, uh, we have to make a change in leadership, and we've taken a vote, and unanimously you have been voted to be the new local organizer of the Colorado Springs chapter of the KKK. Oh, my gosh. That's how and, convincing uh, you were. When I, yes, not only me, but uh, Chuck working cooperatively with me. And when I went to my chief, he said, let's shut it down now. Don't answer any more phone calls. Don't uh, go to any more meetings. He wanted Ron Stallworth Klansman to disappear. And he then said, uh, I want you to destroy all files of the uh, case because he didn't want anybody in Colorado Springs to find out that we had undercover cops into the group. I protested that to the best of my ability. He insisted on the destruction of the files. Uh, so I said, yes, sir. And my sergeant and I marched back to the office. I picked up the notebooks of reports. And I walked out of the office and took them home with me in violation of department policy. I could have been fired had they found out. But I felt like this was a unique investigation. Those reports were evidence of the factuality of the investigation. And without it, no one would ever believe this thing took place. Ron, when did David Duke and those in the KKK find out that the Ron they were dealing with on the phone was black? Uh, when I retired from law from a 32-year law enforcement career in 2005, a Salt Lake Area newspaper wrote a report. The, uh, I was asked... Uh, what are some of the significant things that you've done in your career? I told her the story. She wrote her story commemorating my retirement in Utah law enforcement by focusing on the Colorado Springs KKK investigation. When it was published, it went viral. And one of the uh, people that contacted me was a syndicated columnist from the Miami Herald by the name of Leonard Pitts. Mr. Pitts called me up, wanted to know if my story was true. I said, yes, it is, and uh, told me he was going to write a column about me. But one of the things he did in researching uh, my story, 
He contacted David Duke directly and asked David if it was true. David said, uh, no, he's lying. Pitt said, if he's lying, how come he has a membership card signed by you? And David backtracked and said, well, we didn't do anything wrong. So David did uh, uh, learn in 2006 that he had been conned. In this interview, you've reflected on how members of the Klan back then in the Colorado Springs area were uh, high up in the community. They were they were at NORAD. They were, you know, in government. Did this open your eyes to the reach of the Klan, to the power of the people in the Klan? I wonder how it changed your perception of your own community. It didn't change my perception in any way, uh, shape, or form. Uh, Colorado Springs is a good community. It was then, it is now. It's a typical all-American community. And in being a typical all-American community, they had issues of race, probably still have issues of race. So that's not unusual. And if you're going to have issues of race, uh, especially where black people are concerned, you're going to have uh, people from the white supremacy movement uh, who wear their ugly heads in your community and try to... uh, quote-unquote, take America back or uh, make America great again, which is nothing more than code word for make America white again, in which uh, they dominate uh, blacks and we are subservient to them. Those days are over. They will never, ever return. Blacks no longer fear people wearing white robes and sheets and burning crosses. Uh, We look upon them as clowns and we will deal with them uh, in the appropriate fashion. Which is? Whatever they dictate, uh, we will we, we will respond accordingly. We read it, read into that whatever you will. So this film went into wide release last Friday. Uh, Spike Lee planned it that way because it was the anniversary of the white nationalist rally that turned deadly in Charlottesville, Virginia, last year. The film ends with scenes of that protest. Ah, then we've got the the white supremacist rally in D.C. a year later. Where is your head right now? Where's my head in terms of this rally? In terms of this rally, in terms of the country right now? Uh, The country is in a bad way because of the idiot that occupies the White House. Uh, With a wink and a nod, he gives license to these people to be who they are and do the things that they do without condemning them. And uh, it's disgraceful that he has failed in his duty to be the moral conscience of this country. As for the Unite the Right uh, rally, whenever uh, people like that rear their ugly heads, law enforcement needs to be vigilant. They need to be aggressive in stopping them and uh, don't take any nonsense from them whatsoever. The president has tweeted, the riots in Charlottesville a year ago resulted in senseless death and division. We must come together as a nation. I condemn all types of racism and acts of violence. Peace to all Americans. It's a lie. The first thing he said after Charlottesville was there were good people on both sides. He basically tried to find an equivalency between white supremacists marching yelling, Jews will not replace us, and blood and soil, old German uh, marching chant from uh, the World War II era. He uh, basically tried to equate them as being the equal of the nonviolent counter-protesters. His words, the first words he says, are the words that everyone should pay attention, not what he says a year later. It took him about a day or two before he uh, reversed himself uh, last year. 
Ron, do you miss being a cop? Uh, no. I had a good career. Uh, it ended when it did. I was glad that it did. And I'm very proud of the career that I had. I'm so grateful for your time. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Ron Stallworth retired after 32 years in law enforcement in several Western states. He wrote the book Black Klansman. Producer Spike Lee turned it into a movie by the same name. The film's been nominated for four Golden Globes. Stallworth and I spoke in August. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Whether she's running in the Boulder foothills or playing the piano, Amy Briggs brings a passion to what she does. Her music took a twist when she developed a love for a form called etudes. Now she's on a mission with a man who composes these technically challenging pieces. Brad Turner, host of the Centennial Sounds podcast from CPR Classical, tells us about this unique collaboration. Composer David Rakowski loves to write piano etudes. He's written 100 of them. Etudes developed in the 19th century as short practice pieces. They help musicians focus on a technique or build strength or dexterity. But many were also beautiful. This is a classic etude by Chopin. Now listen to one of David Rakowski's 21st century etudes. The pianist playing this piece is Amy Briggs. She became so fascinated with David Rakowski's etudes, she's on a mission to record all 100 of them. Amy Briggs is one of the most gifted pianists in Colorado. She often spends her weekends far away from a piano. Amy moved to Boulder a few years ago to spend more time outside. She especially likes to head to the mountains for something called ultra trail running. Basically running on dirt trails in the woods and ultra running is anything that's over marathon distance, over 26 miles. Amy's workouts are extreme, especially when she runs at high altitude. The air is thin. The sun is brutal. She runs on trails with loose rocks and gravel. So a short, long run would be maybe 13 to 15 miles, and a long, long run could go up to 30 miles. When Amy does sit down at the piano, one of her favorite things to play is David Rakowski's Etudes. She discovered the pieces a few years ago. A friend asked Amy to play four of the Rakowski Etudes for a concert. So she sat down to learn the music and loved them so much, loved the experience of playing them. They felt very natural in my hands and just in my brain. Like, the music clicked, and I really got it. They were technically difficult, but they didn't feel frustratingly difficult. They just felt naturally difficult. By the time Amy played the etudes, David Rakowski had only written 30 of his eventual 100. David talked to me from his home in Massachusetts. Hello? And said he has three simple rules for each etude. Number one, he never starts with a plan for the structure of the music. Because I just want to find out where the ideas take me. Number two, he writes each etude quickly, in six days or less. And if uh, it's not finished after six days, I have to throw it out. 
That rule goes back to the first etude he wrote. He rented an apartment in Arizona for a few weeks to compose music for an ensemble. He finished writing that piece with six days to spare before he flew home to Massachusetts. So David decided to compose a short piece for a pianist friend. He enjoyed the challenge of writing a short piece in just a few days. And that brings up David's rule number three. When an etude is finished, it's finished. I wanted it to be a place where I could be spontaneous and have to live with my um, uh, decisions. So if I want to change something, the only thing I can do is rip it up, throw it away, and start it again. David found several pianists who liked playing his etudes. Some of them even asked him to write new etudes for them. And then enter Amy Briggs. She stopped by his home for a visit as she worked on her first four Rakowski etudes. David liked the way Amy played his music. She has a supple touch. She um, can get things to sound jazzy. She can uh, play just about any rhythm and make it sound easy and very musical. Once she started playing these pieces, it was like, I have to write more for her. That was the start of a close collaboration between the pianist and the composer. Amy didn't just play the etudes. She helped think of ideas for new ones, like this etude called Strident. It's a study on a style of playing called stride piano. David didn't know anything about this kind of music when Amy made the request, so he listened to some old records. Stride is basically ragtime, except the right hand swings rather than sounds march-like. That was what I found to be very kind of interesting about it. Then taking that style and trying to make it sound like me was what was really cool and fun. And it was a, an etude for me and learning how to write in a style and make it my own. Amy has now recorded 92 of David Rakowski's etudes. She has eight more to go. I visited Amy in her home in Boulder. She keeps pictures of mountains on the walls. She teaches piano, and her piano sits along the wall. Underneath it, a kind of survival kit for long-distance runners. Well, some of it is yoga gear, but it's like foam rollers for people who run a lot and are sore. <laughs> With a basket of stuff to a make you less sore. My yeah. students all think that they're toys, so they get pulled out and, you know, used on a regular basis. I asked her what she's most proud about her work with David Rakowski. She said she's happy that their collaboration led to so much new music that will challenge pianists for years to come. She thinks there's value in pushing yourself, whether it's running huge distances in the mountains or tackling tricky piano pieces. It allows you to discover things about yourself. And it's also meditative. There's a kind of honing in on this particular thing you're working on, uh, whether it's, you know, you're running all day or you know, you're playing something that you want to have at a place of perfection or speed or whatever it is. And I think that kind of thing has always attracted me. In the earlier days, it was more about music. Right now, it's more about physical movement. Um, but I think that they definitely share things in common. CPR's Brad Turner speaking with Amy Briggs... This is an etude called Cell Division. David Rakowski took inspiration from the simple sound his old cell phone made when he powered it on or off. 
Amy Briggs recently made this recording in the CPR Performance Studio. You can hear more of it in the Centennial Sounds podcast. Find it at CPR.org or wherever you get your podcasts. That's our show for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at Colorado Matters from CPR News.